I'm very glad to be here. Uh, and I'm going to turn on my gallery view right now because I'd rather see that than me. Uh, there we go. Oh, how exciting it is. I hope for you as well. I think there'll be a lot of people on Facebook, and I'm sorry that we can't see them, but we can see each other. And uh, even though I haven't been at Spirit Rock for um, a year, actually, during the whole of this pandemic, uh, until last month when I was here, I see lots of people that I knew from before. And if you look at the pictures of the people, perhaps you recognize some of them. And perhaps not, but it's lovely to see all the people who've come. And uh, I see people who are smiling, and maybe some of the people I'm looking at are people who've never here, been here before. So welcome. I'm really happy about having you here. Oh, but this is great. I feel, I feel not only happy in my mind, my body feels happy. My heart rate got a little faster, which I'm happy about. Uh, oh, there's so-and-so, and there's so-and-so. You know, a friend of mine once had the idea that in any public gathering, in a in a church, in a synagogue, even in a in a um, uh, a concert event, an opera, or a uh, a play, that once everybody is seated, before the program started, that there would be a period of three minutes of silence for people to gather themselves together and say, okay, now I'm really here. I sometimes think that my body arrives in places some minutes before my whole mind or my attention arrives there. Uh, that's kind of park, I'm still in parking lot consciousness. Did I write down where I parked my car? Am I gonna be able to find it when I get out of here? What, I should have taken a picture of it. It takes my mind a little bit longer to catch up to my body and be seated wherever it is that I am. So I'm really glad for a few minutes in the beginning. I know that um, that Heidi, in the time that she was teaching on Wednesday mornings, always had a uh, an arriving meditation. So we're arriving. Uh, so I'd like to offer some instructions for the arriving meditation. I look at you and I'm so, uh, first of all, momentarily pleased that you're all here and the people that I know, oh wow. And uh, I'll, I'd like to use as a meditation theme, here we are again, and talk a little bit more about what that particular phrase means to me after we've sat for a little bit, but just maybe four or five minutes. This is what I'd like you to do. I'd like to establish ourselves in here we are again by uh, making yourself comfortable. You know, when someone comes to visit you in your house, uh, or you make you visit somebody else, the nice thing to say to people is make yourself comfortable. Be at home. So make yourself comfortable. Take a long breath in and out. Whatever rushing you did to get here, you're here. Here we are. Probably if you've rushed, I love it, by the way, looking at everybody in their houses, to see people sitting in their kitchens, in their bedrooms, in their living rooms, 
Some people are obviously sitting outside, so they live in warmer climates. But everybody's at home. But make yourself at home. Every language that I know says something like make yourself at home. Make yourself zu Hause is in German. Just make yourself how you'd be at home, relaxed. Close your eyes if you want to for this period of time. And maybe as you sit and feel your body sitting, you can say to yourself, here I am. Here I am. Why don't we here I am ourselves for a minute? Maybe we'll sit a little more here I am in ourselves. And I particularly here I am myself by listening with my hearing faculty wakened up. I have my window open so I hear the crow outside my window. I hear the silence of my room. You hear what's in your room. I feel the cool on my skin because my window is open. You feel the heat of your room or the cool of your setting, wherever you are. Feel with your skin, feel with your whole body. The ambient temperature around you. Here I am. I usually find that when my eyes are closed, and particularly when I focus my attention on specific things like hearing or feeling the temperature of the room, just different on the parts of my body that are like my hands or my face, exposed to the room and the parts of my body that are covered with clothing, that when I pay explicit attention to that, my whole body becomes a little bit more clearly in focus. 
I feel myself sitting. If you're sitting, you'll feel yourself with pressure on your bottom, pressure on your back if there's a back to your chair. If you're lying down, you'll feel that you're lying down with pressure on your body all over. If you're standing because you prefer that, your body feels different. I'll be quiet for a minute. And perhaps as we sit and feel our bodies become apparent to us with eyes closed and we feel the temperature around us and we hear around us, we can notice that with a, a reference phrase like, here's my whole body. Here's my whole body. Here I am. Now I'll be quiet and I'll leave you with those two phrases. Here's my whole body. And here I am. For a minute or so. And one last arriving meditation, which is having arrived, setting the intention for the day, having gathered together all of our faculties awareness. I like to make the intention, may I meet each moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet each moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Try that for about a minute.
And when you want to, open your eyes and look at the people who are around. Look at them with uh, fresh eyes. I realized that as I said, uh, look around, may I meet each moment fully, may I meet it as a friend, and it goes without saying that when we look at other people, we're hoping that for them too, may everyone meet this moment as a friend. And I realized as I was saying that, that it's a meditation instruction that I've been using for years, but I actually in the moment realized in a deeper way than I had before that that really is a summary of why we meditate, why we do any kind of practice in order to be able in this complicated life to meet moments fully, to be able to stand it and to be able to meet them with kindness and compassion. But as I was preparing for this, um, for this talk, which I thought about a great deal, I really like being back so much and I get excited about being able to say what I'm thinking about. And I, I began to think that I could say everything I know uh, in a few words, like um, I got it down to five words, the whole of the Dharma. Responding with compassion is reliably comforting. I think that's the whole thing. If we could have minds that saw fully, clearly, from a balanced way, they would see that everybody in life is struggling. And we'd be so moved by compassion for the human condition. We would be expunged of any traits of ill will. We would just respond with love, with compassion, with kindness. Not only would we be probably nicer people in terms of how the world thought of us, but we'd be happier people. That really, that's the, the cause of happiness, to have a mind that rests in compassionate kindness. But I have more to say than that one sentence, but I really have been thinking about that. I wanted to say very much, um, when I began to write down my notes for today, and I decided I was going to do a here we are again practice. And how much more particularly perhaps than was true before the, the whole year of COVID. How particularly it's a, a miracle. Those of us who are here are here. My father, who I love very much, used to say when we sat down for um, a meal, all of us together, Many families say a formal grace or they say a thanks, formal thanksgiving or a prayer. Uh, my father's prayer, which he thought was, I think he thought was clever. He would say, well, here we are again, God. That was his whole grace. He didn't say anything else after that. He didn't say anything just, well, and it was friendly. Like, well, here we are again, God. 
And I used to think he was so clever. I loved him a lot. He was clever. And he was very dear to me. And he, 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 the idea of saying a grace was not far from him. My family was uh, a religiously, traditionally religiously Jewish, but we didn't say a formal grace before meals. I knew some of my friends who did pray before, pray after. We didn't. My father somewhat prided himself as being a non-believer in spiritual stories or a personal God. But he sat down and said, well, here we are again, God. That was it. And I thought to myself, and really have become more and more appreciative of it, that when we sit down, all of us together, and we say, here we are again, whether or not we say, here we are again, God, but here we are again, that's a statement of real thanksgiving, because it could have been otherwise. You know that I didn't think about that when I was a child. As I grew up, and I had my own family, and my own children, and we got together for thanksgiving dinners or birthday dinners or rosh hashanah or yom kippur or anything else from the whole family uh would gather at some point in the day have a meal together and look around and say how grateful we are that we're all together again i used to think as a child that we ought to say that as an adolescent who was beginning to think a lot about uh-oh, this is a, um, a life in which you lose people who are dear to you. Probably I thought that because my mother was um, had frail health and in fact died when I was 23. But by the time I was an adolescent, I was worried about her a lot. And the idea that we could all be together again as an, as an adult with my own children and now with their children, I look around the table when we were all together and I think it's a miracle to be able to say, here we are again. It's not, a, it's not a nothing to sit down and be with people. It's something. I thought yesterday about half a million Americans are not sitting down at a table with the people they used to sit down with a year ago. That half a million people have died and all of their families are sitting down and they're not there, whether it's for Thanksgiving or Easter Sunday or someone's birthday. Uh, this was the first Passover that I sat down without my husband for almost 70 years. It's different. People aren't there anymore. And as long as people are there, it's a miracle. It's, a, it's often, I don't know, maybe it's altogether an act of luck, but a miracle that when I think about uh, doesn't make me frightened. It makes me more grateful for as long as that miracle is carrying on. It's not a casual phrase, here we are again. When I look at all of you and I realize uh, it could be otherwise, one of you could be missing, you know, that, that for anything. We are so vulnerable as people. That's really what the Buddha taught. We are very vulnerable as people because we care about the people that we're attached to. And we didn't have, we wouldn't have it otherwise. We wouldn't have it otherwise. I didn't mean to say this because it's one of the phrases that I have to then say, but the Buddha was not against families or anything. He did say at one point in the early teachings, uh, anything that's dear to you causes pain. And that's really true. Because if you have things that are dear to you and things change, 
they're they're vulnerable to not being there. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't make people dear to us. Most of us spend our lives trying to find people that we fall in love with and that we want to be with and have progeny or family that we love. One of my friends sent me an email. I guess she sent it to a whole bunch of people the way people send around bomos every couple of days and want you to think about something. She said in it, may you find a way to love the world today. I love that. May you find a way. That's a great grace, isn't it? May That's a great blessing. May you find a way to love the world today. This morning, I got up loving the world enough, I guess. But then I looked at the headlines in this morning's paper. And it's hard to look at the headlines in the morning's paper and not have problems loving the world. Those people are still making a mess of it and still not doing what seems to me the obvious things to make it more comfortable for everyone to live on. I've been thinking about now that the uh, COVID seems to be passing and I'm very, very hopeful that it will. This was the, the biggest worldwide trauma that's part of my life part of everybody's life, actually. Um, I was alive during the Second World War, and um, I knew about it. I was a child, of course, but I knew about it from my parents. And that was a very big relief when it was over, although upsetting in the way it ended and the number of casualties and what we learned about it afterwards. And my uncle would, could tell stories about his family and about his father's death in 1919 from the last time that um, a virus went through the whole world. But they're very rare. But something's going through the world all the time, and people are so vulnerable. I, You know, I think about it, and I don't feel gloomy. I think it should be one big lesson in the preciousness of life. What I ended up wanting to think about and talk about for today is why aren't we all kinder? Why aren't we all getting up every morning and saying, praise be, I'm still alive and the people I love are still alive. Why don't I make something terrific out of this day? Why don't I do something good? How can I help the world? Not who can I be mad at? <laughs> it seems to me incomprehensible that was it's uh, i'm going to sound naive because i'm going to say how come the world has not figured that out yet i'll uh, I'll, t I'll tell you a story so that this is a genuinely a buddhist teaching uh ashoka was a king in uh, uh india a long long time ago in the time just after the buddha was teaching so he knew about the buddha's teaching and Ashoka was still among those kings of whatever province or small regional place he was the king of. And his country was involved in a war with enemies. And uh, the day after the war ended, Ashoka is said to have gone out and toured the battlefield and looked around and seen the numbers of people that were slain, people and horses and 
uh, carnage from one end to the other of the battlefield and being so overwhelmed by what people do to each other if they're angry and if they are uh, led into war that he turned his whole country into a Buddhist country and forswore war and after that they lived in peace. They all took Buddhist principles and they lived in a peaceful way. I think that's actually a true story. A lot of the stories that I know, which I love, that are part of Buddhist tradition, I think are myths. I think Ashoka is real. I, I, I think there's enough evidence that Ashoka is real. But Ashoka was the not the uh, uh, not the only person who said that. The prophets uh, in the Hebrew Bible said, "Turn your swords into plowshares." study war no more. Jesus said, forgive people. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing when people are killing other people. Nearer into, into, into our life, uh, well, from the sublime to the Beatles, the end of the Yellow Submarine, the Yellow Submarine, the Yellow Submarine movie, ends with everybody singing, all you need is love. Lots of religions say, what you really need is love. And we all know the pleasure of loving and caring for somebody. The problem is that we make enemies into some people and we don't love, or we don't love with a full heart. Aldous Huxley, was a philosopher in the uh, middle of the 20th century. And uh, he did a lot of experimenting with mind-altering drugs, and he wrote about it. And uh, he even wrote a book uh, chronicling his experience in dying. And uh, he, uh, in a book called This Timeless Moment, his widow, Laura Huxley, wrote about how all this saw the world and what he thought about in his final time alive. And uh, he is said to have said, when he was really in the final stages of dying, when people said, all this, what's it all about? With all your experimenting and all your drugs and all your altered consciousness, what do you know? Really, what do you know? And he said, I think, what I know is, uh, I think people could be a little bit more kind. That what people need to be is a little bit more kind. It seems like a homely thing to think, after all, this lofty philosophizing that what we need is to be kind. But imagine if the world were kind. Imagine if the world lowered its temperature of talking uh, angrily to each other of making enemies and crowding our minds with enemies. I thought about maybe after this pandemic that everybody would be so relieved that this terrible scourge, which could have been much worse even, which doesn't seem actually to be all finished yet, 
that after it, we would all be stunned into a kind of, whoa, the stuff that we worried about before is nothing compared to the end of the planet or the end of life as we know it. Maybe we could start all over again. At the end of the Second World War, people were so uh, moved by the amount of destruction that would happen that they uh, that they made the United Nations. They met in San Francisco and they developed the United Nations. They were going to have everybody talk to each other so we could stop killing each other. And it didn't work out good enough because killing and not taking care of each other is still going on. Maybe this is one of those inflection points in the world. We aren't kinder yet. What would make us kinder? I think, from my own experience, in these uh, last months of enforced retreat that I've been on, that we've all been on, uh, maybe some of you, uh, no, all of us, have been on retreat with different, with different degrees of restriction. I did not really go out of my house for except to go to the dentist once or twice for from March to March uh, because for a good part of that time uh, my husband was in the last year of his life and I was really scrupulous about not possibly bringing home the virus to him uh, some people needed to go to work Some many people work from home but here we are on the other side of that whole quarantine and say, oh, okay, we get to start again. What did we learn? And I, I remember I probably said this to you last time, that I think because of the, um, uh, the particular of ha having been limited in where we could go for all of us, that period was in some way a retreat. That it was a retreat in a way that we couldn't go wherever we wanted. I didn't go out at all. And even if you went out, maybe you couldn't see everybody and you couldn't go with everybody and you couldn't go out without a mask. And we won't be able to do that for a long time. Maybe never, I don't know. But the world is going to be different. What I really hope is it would be different about is that it'll be different because it'll be a kinder world. But... One of the things that I tried to think through for this talk this morning is how did I, how much did I learn uh, better than I used to know the truth about that life is temporal, that everything that everything that's uh, that exists arose at some point and will pass away at another time, and knowing that, well, I'll tell you what the Buddha said about knowing that. He said, uh, he said this in the Dhammapada, which is a collection of sayings of the Buddha. He said, anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. Isn't that brilliant? I wish that we could have um, Q&A. We can't yet, but we'll have it maybe the next time we're together. Because then I would be able to say what do you think what do you think he meant think about it for a second what do you think he meant everyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious i'll give you a minute to think about it
I see it says people can put their thoughts in the chat. Okay, I didn't know the chat was on, but I think that's a good idea. Uh, is the chat on? Is the chat not on? Jesse, is the chat on? Yes. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry that the Facebook people can't register on the chat, but okay, maybe people can put in the chat. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just rest for a minute. And you think about, why do you think, if you really, I think if I really, really got impermanence, I would never be contentious. I'm getting better at it, by the way. Why do you think? Oh, here Rivka says, why bother? Why waste your precious time? Okay, not so fast, Chad. Why watch you? Okay. That's it. Why? Go, go, go. That's why. Why? <laughs> why waste your precious time? Somebody else, chat. This is what I think. Really, it has to do with why waste your precious time. You have this one life and one day at a time. And every moment that we meet somebody, if I really think to myself, I don't know if this person is going to get the virus tomorrow or something else tomorrow or have some accident tomorrow. Well, people, given the fact that life is temporal, these bodies don't last forever. If they're traumatized enough, they die early. If they're not traumatized by sickness or accident, uh, then uh, they last long, but they could last short in the event of something traumatic. That we could have our landscape changed. There could be an empty chair at the dinner table anytime. I think if we thought that, if I had thought that all of my life, why quibble, quibble with people and mess up today? It doesn't mean don't say to people, I think we should talk about this topic, but why be contentious? Someone else has written, I just also lost my beloved, and, and says, and kindness is real. I'm sorry, Ellen, for your loss. I'm thinking that I wish that the knowledge of loss is that it doesn't just happen to other people, it happens to us. And that if I wait, I've discovered, certainly, I certainly discovered in the last year, that if uh, distress arose and I feel like complaining, that if I don't complain, it passes and the complaint is gone. And that really I was frightened and that was the motivation of the, of the distress. I made a note for myself that people who uh, are angry are frightened that things aren't going their way. They're not going to get what they want, or they don't have what they want. I'm thinking to myself, on the one hand, why, given the fact that so many people have uh, died and been terribly sick, this morning's headlines is that many of the people who were sick and got better are going to have enduring mental problems. 
why don't we all say, wait a minute, that's enough of contentiousness. Let's all be friends with each other. And at the same time, in the very same newspapers, I'm reading newspapers now because I, I find that the uh, television news is too contentious, even if the people agree with me to listen to comfortably. That might not be true for you, but it's true for me. So I read. I read the newspaper every day. I read magazines. I, w I want to show you a magazine cover that um, is last week's New Yorker. I'm going to tell you about it before I show it to you because it's it's not one of the things that you have to say to people. The following has content that you might want to not have children see or because there's nothing happening in the um, in in the picture that I'll show you. But I looked at the picture. It came in last Wednesday when the New Yorker comes every week. And I looked at it. Sometimes I don't get the covers. They're very subtle. I have to look at them for a while. Or I have to ask somebody, what do you think they mean? Uh, and I looked at this cover just even at first glance and I had a very bad feeling in my heart and I showed it to everybody that I know that knew that came by and I prepared it uh, to show you and I want to tell you in advance that everybody who sees it is going to have a different feeling about it I showed it to um, my group of uh, six other women this is the sweetest thing on every Tuesday, I meet with six other women who graduated with me from Columbia University in New York in 1955. That's so long ago. That's incredibly long ago. Every one of these women is 85 years old. <laughs> Some of them are 86. And they all can operate computers. <laughs> And they read books and newspapers and they're involved in civic events and they're they're great old ladies like me. And I showed it to them and uh, everybody had a different response to it. So my response isn't everybody's and I'll tell you my response after we all look at it and you have a chance to look at it. But I, 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 I was thinking about and I changed my mind putting it up and say, let's do this as a meditation, look at it and think about it and see how you feel in your body. And then if emotions arise, see what you can do about dealing with the emotions. But I decided that was, that, that wasn't a helpful thing to do. Because um, we can't talk about it back and forth uh, today. We'll be able to talk about it maybe the next time. Uh, and not everybody is going to have as strong a reaction as I did, but and not everybody in my group had the same reaction or even got it in the same way that I did. So I didn't want to make it a test that people could feel that they didn't have the right answer. I just want to share it with you and talk about why I think I reacted so strongly to it. And da da da, where is Jesse, so Jesse, Jesse dear, can you please put 
This is last Wednesday's New Yorker cover. No, it isn't yet. Okay, Jesse. Sylvia, the image is up now in speaker view. Oh, it's not in my view. Okay, sorry about that. I'll go look at it again. No, I'm going to look at the people. I know what's on it. I've got it in front of me. I'll look at it right here. Okay. Jesse, can we, um, I forgot about the muting and unmuting and can people speak? Can people speak if they feel like knowing that their pictures will be up and people will see them? How does that work? Uh, yeah, so um, I think we didn't prepare for that today, um, oh. but the chat is open to all, and so we'll leave that open for the whole session, and uh, so thoughts and, and uh, feelings and, and sort of impressions can go into the chat for sure, um, and if, if, you, if you'd like, maybe we can just um, have folks, um, uh, you know, put their thoughts and everything in the chat just for today, if that's okay. All right, that's what we'll do. Um, well, I'm going to say something because the um, um, the last chat, I think the Facebook people don't see the chat. Is that true? That's true. But yeah, anything that you read out, they would hear. I, so I need you to back up the, the chat for two chats ago. <laughs> Because it went by and I wanted to read it out loud. Okay, uh, I'll, re I'll resend it to you in the chat here. Okay. 
the one that says violence against Asian Americans says understand helps me realize that we no 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 further down subway oh there it is subway delays violence against Asians sense of foreboding so that's what I that's 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 the essence of what I saw there and I have to look at it a little bit because uh, the uh, I'm looking at it here you you, you see that uh, she's uh, the train is delayed there's no one on the train station you see over here in the corner there's um, uh, it's giving you the night schedule of the train when it doesn't run as frequently you can see that uh, she, by her eyes and her wristwatch and her looking down the track. The name of this cartoon, by the way, is Delayed. And the child is holding on and there's a sense of, at least for me, I thought that she's tense and the child is tense. And I have been on New York subways. I know them well. Um, I didn't spend, I wasn't on them in the middle of the night. and. Um, You can tell by her eyes that she's worried and her forehead is brown, her brow is furrowed, and you can tell by her eyes that she's Asian. And you can you can tell that just by her eyes with the mask is there and uh, the child as well. And you just look at that and all of a sudden I felt terrible that uh, it's it rang so many chords of familiarity with me, of, of the New York subways, of those signs, of feeling not comfortable somewhere. Um, I realized perhaps, and when I showed it to my my six friends who I know and love well, and all are wonderful people, they looked a long time, and some of them were moved by it, and some of it saw what they, I saw in it. And some people didn't get it. And I really thought a lot about them because they're all very good and kind people. And I wondered about what is it that makes it possible for some people. Um, I also had an article from the New York Times, which I'll show you. So you can see all my reading material. I <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a given that when you teach in a religious institution, as I am doing for Spirit Rock, you're not to make, supposed to make political statements, like partisan statements, like what parties you support. However, I just told you that I read the New Yorker. I also read the New York Times. <laughs> so I don't have to tell you where my politics are. <laughs> I'm not worried about Spirit Rock coming after me. I will never tell you how to vote, that which is the real worry. Um, there's an article in it about a woman uh, who, I wonder if you can see this, is this in front of the, okay. The woman the woman in the wheelchair is 96 years old and she's getting her vaccine now because she does not live in an old age setting. She does not live in a care facility. She lives in her own apartment. She's 96 years old and uh, someone had to make arrangements to take her 
to a facility. So now she's getting her vaccine. And uh, they are talking about the, the pandemic. And, uh, and she is talking about the... Uh, uh, she's getting a shot from Dr. Michael Lee who also you get is Asian here. I don't know what the what the previous they don't they don't mention that, but he said in it, she says she was born in Germany. She uh, was part of an effort organized by Jewish women in Hamburg to uh, rescue thousands of Jewish children and on convoys called the Kinder Transport and got out of Germany and eventually came went to Sweden and lived with a Swedish family. And after the war, she never saw her family again. They were all killed. She learned that they were killed in different concentration camps. And uh, she never saw her mother again, who had survived but died in a home in in uh, uh, Germany. She got married. She came to New York. She has a daughter who's now 75 and has dementia. So he's, she's 96, she's living and she's in her apartment. But she says that she has a home health care person who comes every morning to help her. And together they watch the news. And she says she has been upset at the reports of hate crimes targeting Asian Americans. She says, quote, this is the kind of thing I have been on the receiving end of, she said. When I hear about things like that, it is a lot. It is like I can see my mother standing right there in front of me. I want to think to myself, how can we all see our mother standing right in front of me when we see some harm being done to somebody because of where they were born or who their parents were? Um, I was six years old, five actually, in 1941 when the war was breaking out and there was a lot of anti-Semitic feeling in New York City. Uh, and uh, I remember walking to school in the morning and having, uh, there were gangs of unruly boys who uh, stood in the street and I was one of the very few Jews in my school, but they knew who we were and shouting epithets that were really nasty and um, scary threats at my friend, my next door neighbor and myself as we made our way to school. But um, so I remember that nothing happened to me and they never did anything other than the threats. It was a time when it was scary uh, and uh, to be a Jew, also not socially advantageous. In 1955, which is the year I was married, uh, Herman Wouk wrote a book called Marjorie Morningstar and about a, a growing up woman who had, whose name was Morgenstern, which is what the German word for Morningstar. And uh, she changed her name from the German name that were, was her parents' names, Marjorie Morgenstern, to Morningstar so that she didn't have a Jewish name and she got a nose operation so she didn't have a Jewish nose, uh, whatever that is. Uh, and uh, 1955 is the year I got married. I had a job in the Brooklyn Navy Yard 
I got married in June and I had a job in the Brooklyn Navy Yard over that summer until I went back to do my senior year in college. And the man I worked with, uh, I worked in the chemistry lab in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and the man who was working right next to me was another young man just starting working there. We had a lot of, we ate our lunches together, which we brought, and we got to be friendly. And he had just recently been married, and I had just been married a month before. And we talked about our different wedding ceremonies. And I don't remember what I told him about mine, uh, whether it was about being married under a chuppah, under a canopy, or what particular thing, or being veiled, uh, at, at something that he was surprised at. And he said, you did that? I said, yes, of course, all Jews do that. And he looked at me and he said, you're a Jew? And I said, yes, I am. And he was genuinely surprised. He was from Texas, I remember. And he said, I never met a Jew before. Like he was genuinely surprised that I looked like a regular person and I'm a chemist in the next, in the next cubicle working away. And I was surprised since New York was, had plenty of Jews in it and enough to have a lot of anti-Semitism in it. But there wasn't any actually rancor in his. He was genuinely, oh, you're a Jew. I don't, I, you know, I, when I was writing this talk for this morning, because, you know, it's amazing to me, if you keep on thinking about this stuff, I think I have to keep teaching because Dharma is very good for me. And if I don't teach it, I have to listen to somebody else. And it's good for me to teach it because I think myself through things. I thought to myself, I actually wrote down, I don't have residual trauma from it. I, you know, I, I don't have, my friends are varied and diverse and my life is varied and diverse. And I don't think I have residual trauma. And that as I thought the thought this morning, I don't have residual thought, trauma. My mind said to me, oh, yes, you do. And I, I remembered an experience, which is about five years ago. Uh, so it was either in the run-up to the last election five years ago or just after that election. But I was, And I remember precisely where I was driving on the curve around San Quentin on my way to, uh, on my way from Berkeley to come home. And I was driving along and the news on the radio said that um, Mr. Trump was thinking of instituting a Muslim registry where Muslims would have to register as Muslims. And that so upset me. Uh, it so had, um, it so echoed of Jews have to put on a yellow star that I actually pulled over to the side of the road because I, I thought I might accidentally drive off the road. And it's a, it's a difficult little part to maneuver. So I pulled over to the side of the road and I stopped driving and I sat there for a while. And I thought, no, I do have residual trauma from it. I don't have, I don't have anger at those people that were the, uh, the that they also didn't know what they were doing. They were 10 and 11 year old kids from families that probably said terrible things, but it wasn't their fault or their, their parents' fault. It's everything's fault that we haven't worked it out not to love our neighbors ourselves. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I put a note to myself, uh, 
just it's not exactly related, but I put a note to myself that said, sometimes you want to explain to this business of being a Jew and a Buddhist. But you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I wrote a book about the fact that I'm a Jew and I'm a bona fide Buddhist teacher. And for a while, people were very into the idea of how can you be da-da-da and da-da-da at the same time. But then they got over it because I am. So so that isn't any more of a problem for me. If it was ever a problem for anybody, it's not a problem for me. I don't think it's a problem for anybody else. I want to talk about one more thing and then... I want for us to do a a proper meditation. I see that I see that we have uh, an hour, so that's good. We have some time. I have some things I really also want to talk about. Uh, Should we do this other thing? No, let's do the meditation. That's a good idea. All right. This is the way I want to introduce the meditation. Um, what the Buddha really taught okay I want to tell you how I decided to do the meditation right now the point of the story I just told you was not just to tell the story about my background but uh, but incidentally because as I told it to you I said you know I thought to myself no 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 I don't have any of that stuff and my mind that seems to have a mind of its own, said, yes, 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 you do. Remember that time that you nearly drove off the road? So one of the things I want to, I want to say is if there's a mind and there's Sylvia, that's not true. The mind is operating all the time. But one of the things that happens, that's been happening for the whole the last 40 years, 40-some that I've been doing this practice, but 40 years um, at least that I've been teaching and talking about or talking about that this whole thing is about paying attention, really paying attention. And what does it mean to really pay attention with a mind that's relatively focused? And I remember last time and now saying, I understand the same things that I understood before the pandemic, but I understand them better. And my mind has more access to seeing more sides of its history and how it works. It makes more connections for me. Aha. That's what conditioned that feeling. That's what conditioned this. I do it that every, all our mind, all our thoughts, all our opinions are conditional. I could change my mind. My pencil here says, because I made this 20 years ago, I had pencils made from Faith Verses of the Third Zen Patriarch that says, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions which means you could change your mind when you're just, when the mind is still enough and in high alert. And I was saying that it seemed to me that the pandemic for all of us, whether or not you were together with a family member who was in the process of leaving this life was a high alert period. And uh, I think for all of us, we had that opportunity to really see firsthand Things are impermanent. It used to be without a pandemic. Now we have a pandemic. My supermarket used to be safe. Now it's not. Uh, I didn't used to wash my grapes. Now I'm washing everything. Uh, uh, I used to be able to do this. Now I can't. By the way, the thing that people 
most wanted to do and answering a survey of what are you looking forward to do after the pandemic most people did not say i want to go on a cruise or i want to go to paris or i want to this or that most people said i want to hug my friends the biggest thing that people wanted to do was hug their friends and i think that that's it i think that we just are fundamentally people who want to be close to the people that we care about we also want to care about people so that then we'll want to hug them. We feel better in the company of friends and family. And the three things that I learned the most is the contingency of people, of things that they are until they aren't, and that I'm not in charge. Nobody is. I love it when people say I'm the kind of person that always likes to be in charge of things. Good luck. <laughs> you can't. It's it's billiard balls. You don't know. You can have an earthquake under my house right at this moment and I fall into it. You don't know. But I want us to be able to do a, uh, I want to do a very particular meditation that is based on, it, but really it's an enactment of the first teaching sermon, a major teaching sermon of the Buddha, not his first sermon. It's a, a sermon that's called The Four Foundations of Mindfulness. If you want to read it in its entirety, you can look online for The Four Foundations of Mindfulness and it will come up and print it out. But these are the instructions that the Buddha gave for how to practice in order to see that everything is impermanent, that um, everything is contingent, that um, insisting things be other than what they are is is suffering. It's not not it causes suffering. It is suffering. That imperative in the mind that things be different from how they are is suffering, and. So this is a meditation. Sit, you know what? You might want to stand up now, stretch. Take one minute, stand up. If you want to, stand up, stretch around, because we'll sit a little bit now. And we've been sitting for a long time. This is the instructions. It begins with the words, um, this is a principal way, friends, for the ending of lamentation and distress and suffering. 
So as the practitioner sits down in the um, original sermon, you'll find it says this practitioner sits down by a tree, but you can sit down in any way that you are. Practitioner sits down, the spine erect, my body relaxed. And they bring their attention to the physical body. Just as we did when we started. A practitioner feels themselves sitting. And they feel their breath going in and out of their body. There are four foundations of mindfulness. And the first one is the breath and the body. So for the next several minutes, during which time I'll remain quiet for some minutes so that you can practice. If you can rest your attention in the experience of breath going into your body, going out, you might feel actual breath if your attention is at your nostrils, because then you'll feel it, breath, breath rushing through your nostrils at your nose. If you are paying attention to the breath by paying attention to your chest, stretching, your ribcage widening, your arms lifting up a little bit, then you might not so much feel it at your nose. You might not feel it as breath coming in and out, as body accommodating, body resting, body accommodating, body resting, ribcage widening, ribcage falling, whatever you want to call it. If you feel more the sense of your belly going out and in as breath enters your body and goes out, you might say out and in, out and in. Some people put their hand on their belly. Some people say it encourages them to take longer breaths in and out. So they feel their belly out 
and in. If your body is feeling comfortable today or at this moment, then attention to the rhythmic breath in and out probably has a calming effect on the mind. If there's something about sitting that causes your body to hurt or if your body is hurting for any reason, even not having to do with the sitting, that this breath might calm it down. It might actually cause a certain amount of dismay in the mind. I wish I didn't have this pain so I could concentrate better. Or I wish I didn't have this pain altogether. Just to notice that and notice it to yourself. Having a desire that pain leave is certainly a normal response of the body. Wishing yourself well. May I feel better soon. May this discomfort pass. May I feel at ease. 
I feel so much more confident than I ever did that straight ahead is always the way to pleasant or unpleasant to notice it and carry on. Feel in the next few minutes that in addition to the breath coming and going, your mind is finding this whole experience pleasant or unpleasant. It may have been pleasant at some moments and not pleasant at other times. If I'm doing sitting practice and it's unpleasant, I can decide to um, try a little bit more to concentrate on the breath, breathing, and saying, this is really unpleasant, but I'm gonna sit anyway. May I feel better? May I feel better? Breathing in, may I feel better? Breathing out, may I feel better? Not disregarding the not feeling well. Noticing it and responding compassionately. Noticing and responding compassionately is always redemptive. Attention to pleasant and unpleasant is the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind. It may be that your mind is content or your mind is at ease. In the list that the Buddha makes of how you could think about your mind or uh, be aware of it, he mentions things like mindful of gratitude, mind uh, with few thoughts, but he also mentions mind with many thoughts. Mind filled with worry, anger in the mind. And he does it all in that dispassionate way of those are states of mind. They arise and pass away. Mind interested, mind sleepy, mind bored, mind cherishing. As if, because it is, as if it's all okay. Saying those are the things that happen to human beings. And we keep carrying on with kindness. Whatever is there, mind all over the place, that's okay. My mind is all over the place, okay. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is an overview of all of that awareness of the body, awareness of the breath within the body, awareness of feeling tone, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, awareness of the climate in the mind, 
what's present predominantly in the mind. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is a compilation of all of those, a synthesis of them, an insight. The insights that one has to have, hopes to have, like, wow, I was just uncomfortable and now I'm comfortable. Things change. That's an important insight. I didn't feel good and I wished myself well, and then I felt better. That's an important insight. The fourth foundation is seems as always seemed to me to be a repository, a synthesis of not only what's happening, but what do I now know? Not only about what's happening, but about what's true, what's still true millennia from the Buddha or the prophets or Jesus or anybody else who said what's true. Millennia later, what's still true? So we'll sit for one or two more minutes quietly. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And open your eyes. And here we are all again.
The point of mindfulness, I don't know how many times I've said this and can say it again, is not just to calm down, it's to calm down and wake up. And to calm down enough to be able to wake up and look around and say what's going on in the world and uh, not be angry at it. I like so much that my friend sent that, um, that email yesterday that said, may you find, may you find something, may you find a way to love the world today. That's such a, uh, a provocative thing. So the world would be great if only these people did this, or only the politicians got that, or only the this, or only the that. But it's always if only. And nobody died in a, in a car crash or um, anything, uh, any accidents didn't happen. The thing about, one of the things I think about contingency, about every contingency together with um, uh, the, th the three, I, I, maybe I didn't say today, that the Buddha said if we knew three things genuinely well, we'd stop insisting that life be otherwise. If we knew that everything is temporary, if we knew that everything is contingent, nothing happens that's not related to what all happened in the world ever before. And uh, nothing happens that doesn't, isn't a, a part of anything that is going to happen from now on, that we are inextricably caught in a world of conditions. Things happen when all the conditions are there for that to happen. And I, I have no sense of karma in the sense of retribution, you behave badly, therefore that's happening to you. The kind of karma I believe in uh, that has any relationship to how I behave is if I'm an unpleasant, uh, if I'm an unpleasant person now, when I'm a really old lady, I won't have any friends. But that will not be because somebody decided that and I got it as a retribution. That will be the normal consequences if, if, if it's not pleasant to be with me. Nobody's going to want to be with me. I won't have friends. But the, the cosmic karma of who's in what place at what time, who knows? We, we learned that better from this whole period of having a flu, didn't we? Because somebody could be standing next to somebody who coughed and that person got the COVID virus, and they went home and saw their friends, and the friends went somewhere and saw other friends, and nobody meant to do it, and it wasn't purposeful, and it wasn't because they were a bad person, or did or didn't do anything. Somebody coughed, and a lot of people got sick. Things happen. When we, and I think next month, I, I'll probably want to say the same thing in the rubric of the Four Noble Truths, that things happen, we struggle with things that we can't change. With a lot of things we can change, so we do. We struggle with things we can't change. And the struggle itself makes it worse. And we could stop doing that. And that the struggling of things we can't change is what the Buddha called the suffering. A lot of things we can't change. And to struggle 
is to create extra trouble for ourselves to say okay how am i going to how am i going to cultivate my mind so that it realizes this is what i need to live with now this is what i wanted but it's what i got and i need to live with it now we'll talk about that next next time i'm there because it's it's the fundamental piece of buddhism and it's not that different from these three causes these three um three um you have to know the three truths about uh uh life experience that it's uh impermanent that it's really uh one one struggle after another in life of of coping with problems which we do without thinking about it but being alive is to deal with problems and mostly solve them and carry on with them that sounds like the name of a book that i wanted to tell you about the book is called keep cool and carry on it's a new book uh it uh, uh it's by susan specter who i don't know but who sent it to me because i she's somebody who knows me through, through the teaching probably and the thing and i loved it uh First of all, I'll tell you briefly, I'll read you the back cover, which tells about it. Uh, at age 62, Susan was living in a cabin in the woods, a quiet life filled with books and hikes, a loving partner, good friends. She didn't think it would change until it did. So uh, the, the, the things change. She uh, developed all kinds of symptoms of numbness in her limbs and uh, kind of neurological symptoms and finally they were so profoundly disabling that she sought out medical help and she was diagnosed as having uh, uh, literally water on the brain hydrocephalus because they could see with scans that she had a tiny little tumor in the middle of the brain and because the tumor was creating fluid the the uh, drainage system in her brain was not sufficient to drain that fluid and it was causing uh, hydrocephalus and causing all these symptoms. So they did a very complex operation of building her different shunts so that the extra fluid in the brain would drain out of her, which it did. And now she's living some fair number of years. Well, asymptomatic. And the tumor is still in the middle of her brain. And they can see it. And they, she says here, they figured out... Uh, it was up to Susan uh, because they had to leave it in the tumor. They couldn't, it was inoperable to figure out a watch and wait plan for her inoperable but stable at that point brain tumor. And she started to look through it, look at it through the lens of a Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, which I had never heard of, uh, embracing her perfectly imperfect brain so uh the the wabi-sabi i learned from her is saying that everything is perfectly imperfect it doesn't last something's thing like life it's it lasts as long as it lasts and then it says whether you are living with a chronic illness fearful about disease progression or worried about getting age an aging mind and body anybody here worrying about an aging mind and body <laughs> We could have a show of hands. <laughs> uh, 
that Wabi Sabi is how to be grateful for life's in inevitable uncertainties and appreciate the beauty of imperfection. And so is that not what we're trying to do here? This is an ordinary, uh, immediate, regular person. She's not particularly a Buddhist or a, she's just able to say, uh, this is what I've got. It might grow, it might not grow. But you know what, that brain tumor, but you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the favorite story that I re reprise with a, 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 a tremendous amount of frequency of the monk with the tiger. Monk is running around, is walking near a jungle, walking along, and all of a sudden he senses there's a tiger walking behind him, and he picks up the pace and really starts running, and the tiger runs after him, and he needs to jump off the end of the cliff, which he does, and the tiger is growling over the end of the cliff, and uh, he grabs onto a vine that's hanging down from the cliff. And he's grabbing onto the vine and looks up and the tiger is growling down at him. And he looks down and it's a big ravine and there's water crashing over rocks at the bottom. So he can't climb up and he can't let go. And he's hanging there. And he notices that there's, uh, uh, at that point, he notices that um, a mouse comes out from another crevice in the rock and starts gnawing on the vine. And then he notices that there's a strawberry growing, one strawberry is growing on a little vine sticking out of another crack in the rock. And he eats the strawberry. And he says, that was a really good strawberry. And I love that story. It's a Zen story. If you travel in Korea and you go in Zen monast in Korean monasteries, you'll see there are often very big paintings, reproductions of the monk hanging on the vine. And I like it a lot because I think we're all hanging on a vine, but we don't think about it every day that we're hanging on a vine, but we are. We don't know who's wh how the, the, the mice of our life that are uh, gnawing away at the vines of our life how long they're going to last. We don't know. I don't know when I go on the highway and I ride at 65 miles an hour with all these cars, one or another, whose car is going to careen into mine or what earthquake is going to happen or what calamity is going to happen or crossing the street, what's going to happen. We're all on vines. And I think that, that's, that the point of that talk the point of those pictures of the monks on vines is that we're all on vines. And the, what you could possibly learn from that is all we have is this moment in which to have the strawberry and enjoy it. We're all on vines. So that this Susan Spector, who has to go every six months to see if her tumor has grown, that's the two, that's the vine that that's the mouse that's there with her, but we all have mice. We don't have that particular tumor, but we don't know what's going to come around the corner and we're going to suddenly get either personally afflicted with or one of our family and something will happen to us 
because if one of my family is afflicted with something, I will feel it because we feel what each other feels. We care about each other. One of the things that always touches me a lot and gives me a lot of uh, faith in human beings, even though they haven't figured out yet to stop abusing each other and killing each other and hurting each other. I, I have a lot of faith because I think that fundamentally we care about each other that we and we want to and we need each other. And everything is contingent. You don't know what's going to happen. And everybody is living in a contingent universe. One time many years ago, I was flying up from uh, San Diego to Oakland. And uh, in the middle of it, it's a short flight. I didn't know the person next to me, but you know, flying along and I'm reading a book or she it was actually, I remember it was a woman and she was reading a book. And uh, we all of a sudden, without the pilot saying, you know, we're going to have some rough air, all of a sudden we had uh, a tremendous patch of da 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 that after it was finished, went on for maybe 20 seconds, after it was finished, the pilot came on and he said, uh, sorry, ladies and gentlemen, that was a mountain wave. It's unusual to have it, you know, in California, they have it over the Rockies all the time where it's um, rocky, it's bumpy air that we don't see for, and we can't warn you about, sorry about that. But in the meantime, what happened in that 20 or 30 seconds that was bouncing around is I looked at the woman next to me, she looked at me, and I put out my hand, I offered my hand, and she took it, and we held hands. Because when your pine is falling down, you want to hold somebody else's hand. You do. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say guys don't do that. I, I, I think everybody would like to do it. <laughs> I don't know if everybody would do it, but I don't have a problem. I didn't. I didn't think, should I hold a hand? I did. And we held hands. Then after it finished, uh, then we talked to each other. And it turns out we even knew some of the same people in Oakland or whatever, which we wouldn't have known if we hadn't held hands, if there hadn't been that bumpy ride. But I think that we all want to reach out because we, in a certain way, when uh, when we're threatened, we care about each other. So I, I thought it was on my mind to say something about, uh, there's a particular, um, by the way, did I tell you the name of the book? The name of the book, I think I didn't tell you the name of the book. The name of the book is Keep Calm and Carry On. It's only, it's just a brain tumor. It's just a brain tumor. It's just a mountain wave. It's just life. So I wanted to tell you, um, I had an experience, two experiences of uh, a, a deepened awareness of what I mean by may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering which sounds like a poetic line that you would just say. And we say it all the time. We say it at the end of a meditation or at the end of a class. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. But I don't really think about it. And if you really, if I really thought about it, you do it like it's a line of liturgy that you just say because you know it. Uh, 
but the, to sense all beings everywhere. You know, anyway, here's a story. Um, and it also has to do this story with uh, impermanence. At the same time that my husband was plant, was in the process of dying all of last year, um, and us knowing about it, and he knew about it, and just taking care of him in the most comfortable way that we could, uh, my uh, grandson's wife was pregnant. And uh, here she was, uh, getting ready to give birth to a new life into this life. I was very glad that that coincided with his leaving this life. It was very much like a, uh, um, it was very much like lives begin and lives end. That's just the way it is. It's not a bad thing or it's not a sad thing or a terrible thing. It's just a thing thing. Life begin and lives end. That's the way it is with life. So he was dying every day, a little weaker, and she was getting more and more getting ready to have a baby. And I thought about that a lot, uh, about the the new life coming. And he wanted a lot to see her, which he got to do, actually, and hold her. So that was wonderful. But uh, when she was uh, in labor and uh, her uh, her mother and uh, her mother-in-law, who is my daughter, and I were all with her through the labor, through the first 12 hours of the labor, which were really very, very difficult and through a long night. And during which time she was in a lot, a lot of discomfort. And we were all in the apartment and taking care, taking turns, doing this, doing that. The midwife was then there. And uh, the baby was successfully born the next day. Um, during the during that night, when I was I was uh, in the next room at one point. This is a round apartment in San Francisco, so you hear what's going on, and you hear the terrible sounds of an agonized mother trying to push this baby along. And I thought to myself, maybe I could say a prayer, but you know I'm not used to praying for to a source of prayer or, and you know my mind that doesn't have a personal god in it uh can't do that doesn't feel i mean as I, I thought about it but couldn't make it do that because i don't believe that i mean, that was ridiculous to be analyzing prayer you just pray but that didn't somehow feel real but and i suddenly had a, a thought that at this moment, Tessie is trying to get ready to push out this new baby. And I suddenly thought, how many women there are at this very moment in the whole world trying to push out a baby? All over the world, probably, what, there are 8 billion, 7 billion people in the world. There are millions of women at this moment pushing out babies and millions of other women and men probably too, helping them push them out. And all of a sudden, even as I tell you now, and it's not happening now, I feel it, the kind of my hair stands on end. And all of a sudden, I had a feeling that I wasn't doing this alone in the world, and neither was Tessie. And Tessie's mom and my daughter, we were all having that baby along with every other 
person in the whole world having a baby at that moment and all the caretakers. And all of a sudden, I got it while we can say, may all beings everywhere be peaceful and happy and not suffer. May they be at ease. May all babies be born. May all babies have homes. May all babies have caretakers. And that I really honestly felt so devoutly connected to. I certainly heard the the pain sounds, but I was so buoyed up by the feeling, not the idea, of the feeling that I'm not alone, that really the whole world is doing the life along with us. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And then months later, when Simon was um, dying, uh, he took some time to die, very comfortably cared for by hospice, uh, with all the right, the, the hospice gave us all the right drugs to give, and we, we took care of him ourselves, and we were able to do it. And he was able to die at home in his bed, which is what he wanted. And uh, actually, when he died, I was alone with him in the room, sitting with him. And everybody else was in the house. And sitting with him, not distraught, just wishing that his poor body would let go of breathing and that his heart would stop because he was really very much ready to be on the other side, wherever that is. And I sat there and really wished so much for him not to be, he didn't seem in discomfort, but for all of us who were waiting for his passage. And then all of a sudden I thought about it. at this moment, all over the world, there are people who are getting ready to pass out of this world. And there are people who are ministering to them and sitting with them or holding their hand or talking to them or weeping or telling other people's stories about them. All over the world, there are people who are having my same experience right now of sitting with a beloved who's about to be out of this world. And all of a sudden, I, I can feel it now as I tell it to you. Uh, I can, again, the absolute meaning of may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. That's not an idle thing to say. It's not, it's a, it's a nice thing to say, and it's a sweet thing to say. It's a redemptive thing to say. When I, in both of those experiences, I actually felt myself to be not separate with my story, but certainly intertwined with the whole world that had my story. So I thought about if uh, there were a name for this talk, so as people sometimes name a talk something, I would call it um, the preciousness of life. The preciousness of life and the preciousness of connection. Not only because it's precious because, well, it's precious when we are connected to people and we love them and we want the best for them and we want them to not be in pain. But at some profound level, we're not separate from them. 
And it's really that particular insight, I think, that could change the world. That all over the world there are people occupied with assisting in borning and assisting in dying and everything else in between. And in a world where that much goodness, what if we all cared really for everybody? What if the world cared? The photo that I'm looking at, I won't show it to you because it's a personal photo of uh, my husband. Uh, I keep it here on my desk because I can see it all the time. Uh, it's him uh, lying down in um, uh, a chair that lay, lay down in his room um, that he could be in until the final days when he could not get up from his bed. So he's lying down, and uh, in front of him is uh, my grandson holding the baby in his lap, this new baby who's now, she's now six months old. And uh, he couldn't lift his hand up, but he's looking at her and smiling. And I held his hand up, and Colin put her baby hand on top of his hand. And... Uh, I get to look at this all day long uh, of that baby with her little hand touching his hand and him looking at her. And I think so much about this is what happens. We get old and we just exit out and somebody else, if we have progeny, they, they, they get born with our genes or some of our genes. If we don't have progeny, the people that we came from maybe had other progeny that have our genes. The genes aren't important. The people who we've touched in one way or another, either touched physically or touched emotionally, carry us with them into wherever they go and wherever they interact with people. I'm very glad that you are here today. And I will look forward to um, Cinco de Mayo, actually. It's the 5th of May. Um, and we'll all be back together again. And probably I'll make a note for myself because one of my habits is that I say, oh, next time we'll talk about it, and then I promptly forget about it. So I wrote a note for myself that said, next time let's talk about the Four Noble Truths and how uh, they really mirror the three truths about experiences. Everything is impermanent. Everything is interconnected. And there is suffering inherent in life because everything is impermanent. And we can love life in spite of the fact that it's full of loss 
because it's also full of love. So thank you very much for being here. And I, we could look at it as we start to leave and as you click yourself off. That sounds like a funny thing to say as you click yourself off. As you end your connection with this group, you can think about, let's think about, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I see that Spirit Rock ends this call as it does all of them. May the merits of our practice together benefit all beings everywhere. To which I'd like to add, Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.